Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. Talking to Alan Pardew was a priority for me because when we've done tiny little bit of information exchanges, I've really enjoyed hearing from him. I thought that as with all big interviews, I wouldn't go into this chat with a roadmap about where I wanted to get to. Rather, simply ask the questions I was curious about. What emerges is a story of pivotal moments in your life and in your career. For example, Tomaszewski at Wembley for Poland against England in 73. It's not me who raises Football Club Barcelona, it's Alan and the Dream Team, the effect they had on him. Charles Hughes and his Neanderthal football teachings, the effect they had on Alan Pardew. Alan's determination to make it through from non-league football in his mid-twenties to within a blink of a footballing eye to be at Wembley twice um, as, a, as, a, as a successful footballer, proving that all along his determination to not accept rejection was right. But he also brings up life-changing moments like a car smash that could have ended his life. In truth, accepting a pay cut to become a professional footballer. Just think about that in this modern day where we're beginning to talk about should a top player be earning £300,000 a week or four? All in all, this is typical of him. He's very forthright. I enjoyed the answers. I enjoyed the process. And if you can hear a little bit of twittering away in the background, those are the lovebirds. They really are. First of all, it's a pleasure to see you again. You've been awfully kind to me in my career and it's been nice meeting you and watching your progress. I enjoy your football and I enjoy what you represent about football. And if you'll sort of tolerate me, where I want to start with is asking a question about what was the first time you can remember going to Wembley or wanting to go to Wembley, presumably as a youngster? And, and what did Wembley growing up mean to you? Well... The 66 World Cup, I was five. I have no recollection of that, which I'm kind of shames me to some degree. I don't know why. Because um, my dad was a massive football fan. 
and we used to watch football together yeah. on terrestrial TV because obviously there was only two channels or three channels was coming or four channels was on the way. My earliest memory of Wembley is not a particularly great one. It was the Poland game. Oh gosh, yeah. When Sir Alfred, uh, we'd won, you know, we was 74, we'd done the 1970 World Cup, which was a massive memory for me because that was ingrained me into the Brazilian yeah. and, and the way, the beauty of football and the romance and everything. And 74 was the reality and the harshness of how it can be. What football can be like. So I was in love until 1974, <laughs> and then I realised, wow, what has happened there? The tackle on the halfway line, the miss. The, the, Is that Norman Hunter's tackle? Yeah, the, he misses the tackle. Yeah. You're like, oh, oh dear. And I, uh, enough about me uh, as a, a, a teenager, well, early teenager then, to realise that, oh my goodness, they've scored. This is going to be a long night. And it, and it was. So that is my earliest memory. Of course, we never, uh, working class background, never really went to Wembley uh, uh, until I was probably, uh, I would have been about 22, 23. I went to a couple of games at Wembley. I remember seeing, I don't know what year it was, when it was actually the best, and you all know this team pretty well, um, Barcelona won, Sampdoria nil, yeah. and Koeman scored. scored. Goal, yeah. And he was an unbelievable performance at centre-half. And I remember sitting there watching that game and really taking in the technical. So it's always been kind of had uh, peaks and troughs, yeah. Wembley, for me, throughout my career, for various different reasons. I, I don't mean, mean to make this a stupid question, but what if age you to go to Barcelona Sampdoria? So in other words... It pops ahead of saying England International. It pops ahead of somebody in in the pub saying to you or to your dad, "There's a ticket for a semi-final. There's a ticket for the final." Whatever. What, what drew you to that match? Well, because if I'm right, you you wouldn't have been able to see a massive amount of either Barcelona or something on the television by then because it's '92, and there's still not a lot of coverage of continental football. No, I'd been to a couple of games at Wembley, but not many. Probably internationals or whatever. It's the first game I probably watched and realised that Champions League final obviously that this was a different type of football mm-hmm. uh, because obviously as you're saying there wasn't much coverage on TV of any kind of foreign football no. national teams you would see obviously Czechoslovakia or whoever was coming to Wembley Holland wow what a team they were I remember seeing that on the telly and being amazed at how we couldn't hardly get a kick of the ball Jan Peters I think scored a couple of goals in just before the 74 World Cup that would have been probably but so you know I have mixed memories but that's the game that kind of sticks in my mind as uh, an outstanding technical game and um, changed I guess in a way kind of changed my my view of how the game would be played if it was slightly different in England changed it because of you enjoyed watching that or what you I enjoyed the, the technical aspect of the game and in England at that time, you've got to remember, technical wasn't really top no. of the agenda. In fact, the technical side of our game deteriorated from, uh, I would say, in, around the late 80s to maybe 2000, somewhere in that period. This, you know, Hughes's doctoration of the FA had come through to all the coaching systems and everyone was playing long ball when it was aggressive and tough. And technical quality of the England game was uh, was somewhat reduced, I thought, by that. I didn't live in this country then. And 
I certainly don't want to be judgy or come across as judgy, but you know, I, I moved to Spain because of a love of a particular style of football, and it's been really rewarding just as a person um, experiencing this football. But it, it find, I find it really hard to understand that nobody stood up or stopped Hughes and his. I think he was part of it was position of maximum opportunity and correct. And also, Dutch Allen is kind of deified in Ireland for. You can say it different ways. You can say pomo, which is now, you know, you have to spit in the ground when you say it. But anywhere now, if you say put him under pressure, it's fantastic. And it was the same sort of idea which worked for his national team. But is it is any idea how on earth it managed to spread and stay and not be a pomo? Well, you have to remember, I took all my coaching badges under that regime. And it was so... I remember we used to speak at lunch, the coaches thinking, wow, this is not what I expected. You know, I really thought we'd be learning technical stuff here and the actual learning on how to coach uh-huh. was quite good I thought remember Mr Hughes employed a lot of school teachers and a lot of academics and the actual to teach to coach was quite good mm-hmm. it was just the subject matter that was yeah. completely but it's the senior pros we were looking at each other and a lot of senior pros of course wouldn't do them so there was noises but of course it was not being heard and uh, we didn't really have a voice we kind of done it, got our badges, and yeah. then decided to adopt whatever you see in that. My early career as a manager was somewhat influenced by that regime, and Stevie Coppel, who had great success at Crystal Palace here, yeah. doing that regime. I played under that regime. So the coaching syllabus in this country uh, was very poor. Does it hold any responsibility for the fact that all these years on, it can still be quite hard for even England teams with elite footballers that this country produces to, to hold on to the ball in, in times, in tournaments, in the summer when it's hot, when it's a very unforgiving environment if you give it away, where other teams learn to punish you, where now the, the, the fine line between succeeding and failing is as thin as you can possibly imagine. Is there some correlation between what this country is still trying to get rid of and, and, and that those years of teaching or, or do you think it's out of the system now? I wouldn't say it's out of the system it slightly worries me that we don't play any competitive football until you get to the development group so if you're under 16 under 14 there's no league table there's no trophies I think there's a cup you can win the FA Youth Cup that's about it that worries me a little bit so I still think there's some massive improvements to be made in our coaching syllabus and our way we bring our kids through mm-hmm. In terms of the Premier League, what the Premier League has given us is a view of the world close up. Rather than watching it on TV, it's in front of us now. Agueros, Tavez, they've all come through this system. We can name a thousand players who are from France, from Spain, from the South America, are all in the Premier League. And of course, it's influenced the game massively and coaches as well. And um, if that hadn't have happened, let's just say the Premier League hadn't have happened. We didn't get the finance for it. I really would worry where we were, yeah. where, where we would be now, because really and truly, the FA is slightly detached and has gone along and you know improved a little bit, improved a little bit, improved a little bit. But it's been the influx of foreign coaches and foreign players that have influenced coaches like myself more so than anything I've picked up on any coaching course in England, and that is a slight worry. Before we develop that, because I think it's a lovely touch that. You say that and the way in which your view on football and how you might coach it, how it might be played. 
to seeing a particular Frenchman you've got in your midfield, who I think is a very gifted footballer, very enjoyable to watch. And I, I know you've said he's also a super pro. But before we go there, you, you talked about lack of competitive play for under-16s and so on. Can I, can I take you back to your playing days before you hit the big time? Because there's a huge amount being made of Jamie Vardy, rightly now. Fantastic. And it's a story that makes everybody happy. And I think gives everybody hope. But it, to some degree, it echoes your story. It echoes Ian Wright's story. There are many others. One of Chris the interviews Waddle. we did here was Chrissy. And, and Chris... Chris, I mean, Chris Waddle <laughs> will do something that I don't think Vardy will do. Well, he might do. You know, he won a Champions League medal. Well, Amazing. Chris, Chris the league. you know, he, he goes abroad. He's a very cultured man now. He brings... That stadium you were in at the week, it was the velodrome, wasn't it? You were not Monaco. No, in the Marseille's new stadium. In Marseille's new stadium. So he brings the old velodrome to its knees in worship. And he was very funny about life over there. But basically, he's still a rock star there now. <laughs> but he was, you know, what he says, he was putting spice in sausages as, as a kid. He didn't believe in himself. He was rejected. He, he became a goalkeeper. He played amateur football and nearly didn't make it and found the tr- transition into even Newcastle's reserve set up really, really hard. But what was life like while you were... I don't think... Were you even playing in, I don't know, Corinthians and Dulwich and whatever, thinking there's still a professional life in this for me? Or were you playing for the pleasure or for the boot money? Where were you at in, in that stage of your career? Well, bizarrely, I still felt that I was, should have been a pro. That kind of ate into me uh, through my 20s that I've been dealt a harsh hand a little bit. But it never really ate into me. It wasn't something that I would bore someone with. But it ate into me when I played. So I was always, whenever we played a pro team or we had a pre-season friendly against a pro team, I would be extra committed, extra letting them know that should have signed me uh, but of course when I look back on my time as a young player I was actually technically pretty good not very good but my body was weak and my body didn't come to me till I was about 22 I didn't get any strength till I was 21 any kind of body strength so I can understand why I missed the boat so I wasn't bitter or twisted about it or I just knew that I could do it I just knew I'd played enough against enough good players ex-pros who come into non-league and in those games I was just telling you about to know that I could do it you know at 25 I'm thinking hmm don't see it now and then it arrived so probably just as it was waning that kind of desire and belief that it was going to happen uh, it, it, it did happen before I ask you who Billy Smith is what's the colour and the texture of life in those teams in those leagues well I always say this to players the winning mentality never changes through any technical level I've played at and I've played and managed I would suspect at every senior level in England so I think I'm in a good position to say (laughs) so you know I could be sitting with an accountant who went to uh, Oxford I remember at Casuals we had a couple of real old gentry still sort of hanging about and uh, but their desire to win was was no less than mine so that doesn't change so you've got to imagine you put a group of guys together they've been working whatever the winning mentality is there the technical ability of course is not there the fitness is not there the preparation is not there the organisation isn't there but the winning mentality is there and that shows its head 
in unbelievable ways at non-league sometimes. Sometimes I've been in teams that have a greater winning mentality than pro teams that I've managed even. So um, that is something that, um, that transcends. But uh, my period in non-league was a great experience for my personality. I think if there is one thing that's helped me in management, I had an interesting night Saturday after our victory. I had my Sunday teens from when I was 20, Christmas drink. Uh, those that are still alive, bless them. And uh, we were talking, and I know I can handle most personalities, most situations, most uh, conversations because of my experience in the league and the multitude and the fabric and the, of this great tapestry of people that comes through that world. What, so, what have these guys gone on to do? They've all gone on to do weird and different things. Some are now retired. One worked in the meat market and become hugely successful. He went from the shop floor to owning the company. I've had other guys who uh, become builders, now own their own building company, advertising guys uh, who have done quite well. One or two have not done so well. The divorces and the usual family issues that go on and loss of job. And, but of course, like a football team, what that brings you together, that's your cement, yeah. is your memories of your football team. So it was nice to have all those guys who, were, who have been successful and all those guys who haven't been successful meet and have, and have a shared agenda. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. quarter of a century now that you've been their big success story in football if we could time machine ourselves back to then would they have been surprised by something like this for Alan Pardew 
would, would they have seen that mentality and that the, the words you were using about I feel I should, you know I, I'd been hard done by by football you were motivated by that not bitter would they have seen anything like this for you then I don't think so I think I genuinely always had kind of leadership qualities I think that they could have seen in me yeah. I think they would have said oh yeah I think Pards will you know, be a manager of a Sunday team Saturday team non-league team to have gone on uh, where I've gone on of course they could never have predicted that and I couldn't have predicted it at that time I had to change my knowledge uh, quickly I had to kind of absorb a lot of professional knowledge quickly to become a coach mm. I had a lot of non-league knowledge and a lot of that winning mentality in me that I needed to channel it into uh, something that had uh, a professional structure and organisation around it I was a real kind of sponge when I come into the pro, pro game, whereas guys would go home after the training, I wouldn't, I'd hang about and listen and talk to coaches. Keith Peacock, when I was at Charlton, was a big mentor of mine. John uh, Griffin, who was chief scout, he's still chief scout here, was chief scout at Crystal Palace then. I brought him back when I come here and uh, I would tap into him. What do you do? How does it work? Da, da, da. So I was a real, real kind of like, I knew it was a privilege for me to be in a programme uh, at that stage, so there's no way I was going to let it slip. We have one mutual friend I spoke to. I didn't speak to many, but he said, it's funny you mentioned Charlton, so you'll be able to guess who it is. He said, oh, brilliant motivator, brilliant motivator, and clearly on the pitch, in the dressing room, in training, lifting people, going beyond his own performance. Really strong words. Billy Smith, am I right in thinking that Billy, I've never met was, was a big influence in well, how, Billy, how, how Billy, Smith, Billy Smith saw something in me at non-league level that uh, others uh, didn't see and um, he transformed me as a non-league player into uh, a creative player and a player to influence his team in terms of leading the team and uh, being the kind of iconic figure in his team so I have a great debt to him. He's uh, somebody that's been hugely successful at non-league level. Ian Wright come and play for us. We had Tony Finnegan, we had Andy Gray, we had myself, all players that he fed into Crystal Palace. Good names. Big names, yeah. And, Andy uh, played at Marbella. Andy Gray, yes. Andy Gray. I, I, was, I was on holiday and I watched him playing for Marbella and couldn't believe it. Yeah. And Tony... Went to Falkirk, if I'm right? Yes, that's right. And had a little spell up there. Ian Riley, he yeah. did okay for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul Harding. And in actual fact, me and Paul Harding played, whose name you might not be familiar with, but I remember he came into the pro game late. He played for Billy Smith. I was late. And then we kind of went different. You know, he went to pro game. And then we ended up being captains, myself of Charlton and him of Cardiff. And we looked at each other, we shook hands <laughs> in the middle of the pitch. And I went, it's strange, isn't it? Here we are. <laughs> Football's beautiful like that, yeah, though, isn't that's it? Right, as those moments, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it's what it makes it. I think as much as seeing a winning goal at San Siro and suddenly lifting the cup with big ears, I think that's the, the mm. beautiful tapestry of football as far as I'm concerned. Human stories. Yes. And success. Yeah. Particularly against the odds. So I think he Billy maybe rec- recommends you to either Stevie Coppel or yeah. Ron Oates and you're here. Yeah, so uh, pivotal game really. I played for Dulwich against uh, for Billy against Yeovil and uh, the manager who you might remember that played for Manchester City, Jerry Gow. 
Oh yeah, played uh, for Bristol as well, didn't yeah, he? Bristol big City, big yeah. Bristol City, and he was now manager of Yeovil, player manager, and I destroyed him. I mean, I literally <laughs> ran all over him. And uh, to his credit, he didn't take it as an insult. He decided to sign me, so I ended up at Yeovil and uh, enjoyed it. But of course, I was working. I was up at seven midweek game so just go for a midweek game at Yeovil and we play every week every midweek because you know Yeovil was like the Manchester United of non-league so we had Western Cup Isthmian Cup league games etc etc so I had midweek game every week so 7 o'clock would get up I would work hard sometimes have about 10 minute lunch period so I could finish at quarter to three get in my car Drive to Yeovil. Hope, fingers crossed, that 303 wasn't iced over in the winter. Touch and go. Touch and go. Get there late a few times. Play a game. Get in my car. Drive back for two and a half hours. Arrive home. I don't know. Half twelve, one o'clock. Sometimes later, and then and then start work the next day. And it was on one of those journeys home in midwinter when I was driving home and bizarrely. Something had happened in the road and there was cones literally everywhere. So someone banged them or something, mm. pushed them around. And it got stuck under my front wheel. I spun around about eight times in my car, ended up in a ditch. No, not a scratch on the car, not a scratch on me. It really was like, oh, I can't let this, I can't do this. Yeah. And I kind of went back to Yeovil and said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Transfer list and uh, Palace decided to come for me. Those two things were kind of pivotal uh, in, in me getting to pass, Palace you know I spoke to I, I don't want to name him on this but I spoke recently to, to a Premier League player who, who spends some of his holidays working with friends who are joining us because he's obsessed with creating something doing something practically with his hands <laughs> now that's not what you did but you were very successful and very good at what you were doing and was there any doubt about commercially it was a doubt because when Ron offered me two hundred pound less than I was getting as a builder and, a, and as a player, well, that's not that was a lot of job. money. Then that was a lot. Now of money. you can laugh about it, but that's a big decision. Yeah, I really kind of I was like I was pleading with him to say, look, you know, come on, I earn almost twice this what I'm getting. Anyway, I decided to, to take a chance. He promised me they'd look after me if I did well. What that was good enough you? for me. What, 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 what swung the decision for you? There was no decision. He really and truly could have probably offered me £100 a week and I was signed. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. But it did matter because at that time I'd committed to a house, I had a car, so I had certain things I had to pay for. So, but he was good to his word. He looked after me. You know, I, I didn't do well for the first sort of six months. It took me a while to break in. Once I broke in and did well, he, he gave me a new contract. So, you know, he was good to his word. At what stage did you pinch yourself? Because I don't know how many times, you must have talked a million times about scoring semi-final goal, but even, I guess, in the build-up to knocking teams out and then playing Liverpool in the semi-final, there must have been a moment, I don't know, was it, probably there wasn't any self-doubt once you'd gone that far, but was there a moment when you thought, well, this is just utterly fantastic? The accumulated things that come with it, the pressure, I don't know if you did grandstand or bombarded with people asking for tickets. These must have been quite new experiences at that stage. Well, we was uh, what is now would have been a championship side when I arrived and uh, we had Wright and Bright, so that was handy. Um, 
because um, it gave us a chance for success. And behind those two really were like warriors. I mean, Steve Koppel chose a few warriors to play in that team, but not bad warriors. And I actually found my feet in the promotion push. We had a couple of injuries and I'd secured the central position and it was the playoff game against Blackburn Rovers to get us promoted that really gave me the confidence to think definitely I can play. All through that summer, the speculation in the local paper here was of course to replace me. I was the one that had to go out of the team to take them forward to be a Premier League team. And in, in the heart of hearts, I probably thought, mm, it's probably right, uh, you know, but I ain't gonna let it happen. Yeah. So that first uh, season, and we obviously went to Liverpool and got beaten nine, was actually a good period for me. I kind of was doing quite well, although our results were indifferent. Mm-hmm. So it turned out to be a pivotal period, culminating in the in the semi-final, of course. What was the job then? You, you, you talked about warrior players, but you know you could play, you could read the game. And Steve was also a, a guy who liked football when he could have it. I know you had two very good footballers in front of you, but as a midfield, what was your job? Well, ironically, I kind of started when I was at school, and uh, I was a defender, so defensive midfield player. And, believe, and when I went to non-league, I became a creative player because obviously my technical level was above what I was playing at school. So I was in district team and all yeah. that. And Anyway, I became a, a kind of number 10 uh, in non-league. And then when I went to pro, I realised that my technical level wasn't good enough to be a number 10. So I dropped back and become a defensive midfield player, really, uh, with legs uh, to go and nick a goal now and again. And that really was my job. But the other side of my job, which Stevie Copper was very good at, was to man-mark. So if there was a job that he, he wanted done in that midfield, that was my job. So Gascoigne, I had to mark man-to-man a couple of times. Brian Robson a couple of times. Steve McMahon at Liverpool. John Barnes at Liverpool. So that would be my particular role to make sure. And I was very concentrated on that aspect of the game. I wasn't somebody that um, you could give a job to and I would be flippant about it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like that. You know, do the garden, I'll, I will do the garden. You know, <laughs> I'll make sure it's all in lines and it's in... I'm sort of got that OCD about me. Even my desk and everything around me, my files, and it's all pretty, pretty tight. I have to say it's blooming impressive, yes. Yeah, so that's, that's just the way my makeup is. So, of course, but... They also had to be tactically aware of times when to not man-mark and when to release from that job. And I think that helped me become, a, as a coach, become uh, understand uh, for players that there is a game plan, there is, a, mm-hmm. there is a, a certain things that you do need to do, but then there's also jobs that you have to kind of follow your instincts. And I've always been good coaching flair players it's probably my asset. I don't know why that is. Might have something to do with that. But that is something that um, I can give them jobs. I can give them what they, where they need to be in certain situations. But also be able to give them that freedom. And it might come back from... It might be something to do with my playing days. But that's, that's something I'm good at. 